Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome. Welcome, everyone, to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone. And I'm excited about today's somewhat controversial show that we're going to be doing. We're going to be talking about freedom and COVID and rights and some things you, you may not agree with. And I want to really invite you to open yourself to the possibility of alternative conversations. I want to be clear that what I'm going to be talking about is not the opinion of KCR, of the sponsors, the board of directors, or anyone but the person I'm interviewing and myself. And lately, I've been very concerned about the divisiveness that's arisen both in Canada and in the States and other places in the world. And of course, COVID is the issue, but the issue that I'm really looking at is how do you have a civilized conversation with people who have disagreements and protect the freedoms and rights both of the individual and of the collective? So I'm going to invite you to please be open, make your decisions based on what your body. I always tell people that as a therapist, I always say, listen to your body and see what what the interiority, the intelligence of your body tells you, not the fear and the bombardment of mainstream media and some of the main things. The reason I am always have always been on community radio stations, I believe it to be the last bastion of free speech and radio. So another thing that you should know is that I looked for and wrote to many people who were pro-vaccine, a doctor or a scientist, and no one responded to my requests. If you are someone who has an alternative opinion and you have some credentials around that, I would be more than welcome to have you have your say on this show. So having said that, Julius Ruchel is an independent writer focusing on providing perspectives on topics essential to the healthy functioning of science and democracy. He's the author of a new book called Autopsy of a Pandemic, The Lies, the Gamble, and the COVID Zero Con. And you can see more of his writing and his web on his website, which is www.juliusruchel.com. And I'll give that to you again later. But Julius, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. This is fantastic. Sorry for a long preamble, but this is such an important issue. And I, I was happy to see that there's Mounties coming out to protest the lack of freedom. We'll talk a little bit about the 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 COVID and the jab and, and uh, the vaccine and things. But I think the issue that we really want to look at is this loss of freedom and democracy. Uh, and maybe give us a little basic statement about your overview of what you see happening in terms of that area first. 
Well, I think that there's been a complete fundamental shift in, in the, the understanding of, of how democracy is meant to work, where a, a society that is suddenly, our, our democracy is built around the idea that the government is meant to defend our individual rights against, you know, whether it's outside in, invaders or the will of the mob or the will of the voting majority. So the, like the whole system of democracy is built around inalienable individual rights. And yet we've shifted away from that to where we're now willing to roll over top of individual rights in order to achieve a greater good. So it's like a collective or, or a, you know, greater good thinking is how I've been describing it. And I think that that is a challenge to how a democracy is meant to work because the moment that you decide that you're going to start pursuing greater good goals, you are transferring authority to one group of people who have then the right to trample over top of another group of people in order to achieve a, an outcome. Who decides who gets to be in charge? Who decides whose priorities get to be um, at the forefront of that collective you know, greater good thinking? How do you prevent that person from being co-opted by special interests? And how do you even, if you go down that path, then there's no transparency as well because you know ultimately the government instead of convincing you of what's meant to happen they can just strong arm you through brute force to roll up your sleeve or draft you for the military or, or whatever it is that they that they decide is you know the, the need of the nation today that can come at your expense it's also an erosion to our thinking actually you know the possibility of being a free thinker that actually does thinking for itself themselves rather than having thoughts that you see on the television or on the, in the newspaper talk a little bit julius about how you see this whole thing unfolding from the beginning both here in canada and in the us this kind of takeover that's happened and the censorship of any alternative uh, points of view it's remarkable because all the checks and balances of our democracy have essentially ceased to function in this process where, I mean, we, it's everything from the scientific debates that are meant to be happening to, uh, to have a discussion as to what's going on that, that you know, doctors that are not uh, in line with the narrative are being denied their medical license or denied funding if they're working at a university. But on the other end of it is that, uh, you know, like the courts that are meant to be stepping in to defend our individual rights are just either delaying or siding with the with the regime without any proper discussion or analysis of any of the evidence so it's kind of like this this tsunami that's rolling over top of all of the what's the word for it like the the, the assumptions that we have about how a, a, a liberal democracy protects the rights of individuals and ensures that the, the, the policies that are being put in place have the transparency and the checks and balances to prevent overreach and to prevent big mistakes from being made. I mean, in the, in the, in the scientific community, science works on transparency. It works on every single person that, that participates in a scientific discussion needs to be absolutely transparent with their evidence. A credential is something that works for a job application, but it has no no application to an actual scientific discussion. What matters is making your evidence available for others and making yourself available to be critiqued by others so that there's a two-way dialogue that and that's how you get rid of, of mistakes that are being made. As soon as that dialogue breaks down, basically whoever gets a hold of the, the podium gets to claim that the science is on their side and that's the end of the discussion. 
Yeah, and there's, of course, quite a bit of question around the science from the very beginning and the methodology. It's not that, you know, many doctors I've talked to and, and heard speak aren't saying, oh, we're against vaccine, but you, you would think people would kind of get a clue when they're invited, not invited, they're, you know, being pushed in many ways to get a shot that was developed in a very, very short time, which belies the precautionary principle of science anyway, and that has knocked out all the other alternatives, including obvious things like early treatment that's so necessary. And, but this thing, this freedom thing started even before COVID. Let's go back a little bit with the passports and the NIH and some of the things that happened previous to all of a sudden there's this pandemic. Well, and I actually see COVID as being a consequence of all the things that were broken beforehand. I mean, we've seen this now in a lot of sciences for quite some time that anybody that challenges the orthodoxy is immediately deplatformed. They're they're not argued with. There's not a a debate that happens. There's funding that is is withdrawn and careers that are threatened, and that's the end of the story, right? And so once you have an atmosphere like that, it is just ripe for a disaster to happen. I mean, the the same thing is happening even with in, in the democracy itself. I mean, we've been watching our parliamentarians I mean, it's a joke when you watch a parliamentary session, the way nobody answers each other's questions, everybody uses all sorts of word games and and scapegoating and, you know, straw man arguments and all sorts of strange, you know, tools to avoid actually being accountable to each other's questions. Democracy can't function like that. And then you have a media that's also been engaged in endless scare tactics and and outrage, you know, clickbaiting, instead of actually dealing with digging into real issues and, and trying to expose what's really going on. I mean, once you catch the media lying over and over again in order to ramp up outrage, you realize that, that they're, not func- they're not playing the role that they are meant to play in a functioning democracy to ensure that all sides are being aired and that even if somebody that is you know, part of the, the system that, or, or the, the main narrative, if they are not held accountable, then that narrative can slowly drift some further and further away from any kind of a functioning system. Okay, so you're saying that there's lying in the media. Oh, yeah. Well, That's been wild. <laughs> I understand. But let's have some evidence. Let's, let's talk exactly. You know, I know of a number of things myself. Yeah. But just to go back and look and see where that's happened and the impact, the fear mongering and the impact that that's had. You mean from before COVID or during COVID? Well, you can go before COVID because there's the setup with the creation of the vaccine passports and all the things that were happening with the the whole pharma health industry connection there. But even even if you just go with COVID from I think COVID, that, yeah, a, a good COVID example, I think it might be the one to, to talk about when Bonnie Henry in uh, it was in late April. She came out and started talking about uh, this child that had died of uh, COVID. And she made the, the claim, well, this, it goes to show how vicious this virus is. It was reported in the news as that. And so it was being held forward as, you know what, you better watch your children. This is really, really dangerous. And yet in the same article and it hidden sort of at the very end is like it was the very first death 
after two full waves of, of the COVID pandemic, the first death in anyone under the age of 30. So that should, right there is already the first evidence that this thing is really not dangerous to people that are very young and healthy. It is dangerous to the folks that have pre-existing health conditions and that are much older. Then when you dig further into the story, the child that died at that, in Bonnie Henry's claim was a child that was already a patient at the BC uh, Children's Hospital for other things. This child had other pre-existing health conditions and then caught COVID at the hospital. So this wasn't even a child that caught it out, you know, playing at school or in the playground. Right there is where like the, the children that have died of COVID, I think right now it's, I think up to 17 in all of Canada, have all had serious, like really severe pre-existing health conditions, leukemia and God knows what else, right? So these are not your average healthy children. And yet that, that uh, distinction of who's actually at risk is simply not being made by the media. And it creates this tremendous outrage scare. I mean, uh, at the, on uh, April, whatever it was, 17th or something like that, when Bonnie Henry made that claim, at that point, there was 11 children under the age of 19 that had died of COVID in all of Canada. Yet the average number of children that die of uh, um, like uh, influenza and pneumonia every single year in Canada is around 25. So yet again, this, I mean, the, the, the data, when I mean, you dig into the government's own data, you see this over and over again, that COVID is essentially a nothing burger when it comes to risk to the young children and to healthy people under the age of 45 or under the age of 50. But then it becomes much more dangerous to folks that have pre-existing health condition and the very, very elderly. So that well, distinction let's wait is just get, not being to get made. to the elderly. I want, I want to go to stay with the children a second, because yes. first of all, there's almost no deaths except with pre or, or no deaths except with pre-existing conditions but now what's being approved is now to give children a vaccine for COVID-19 which is actually three diseases back all oh, three variants back yeah three yeah. variants that's the word I was yeah. looking for three variants back so we're taking a vaccine that is kind of like using antibiotics that aren't really very successful anymore because they've worn, they've gone beyond their ability to stop something. Yeah. We're using it on on children, and it's not it's not only doing no good; it's doing harm. Talk talk about your research in that area. We'll get to the the older folks later, but this one is so out front right now that they're approving the uh, vaccine for what's the youngest, like five to 11. Yeah. I mean, the latest uh, group is the five to 11s. And I mean, if you go through that Pfizer statement, it's basically a press release. Like they're not even releasing the full level of, of data to the public to be able to dig through it. But I think it was something like uh, 1500 or 1900, uh, boys were part of that study well it was the myocarditis issue is coming up in about what one in five thousand ish right so you, you the, the study is essentially designed to avoid exposing risks like that to children there was no deaths in in both the the uh, the, the kids that were tested and the the placebo group so like, there's 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 so little risk to these kids that you can't even find the uh like you can't even say that it's reduced any risk on that level. What they're doing is testing 
their antibodies to see if there's any evidence of antibodies in the children after vaccination and comparing that to antibodies in older children, the, the, uh, the 12 to, to 19 year olds. Well, ludicrous. I mean, just because there's antibodies doesn't necessarily mean that there's a, re a reduction in risk to those children if those children are not actually at risk in the first place of any severe outcomes if they catch it. And I think that's the other distinction that's often missing is that just because you catch the, the, the virus doesn't mean that you're going to get deathly ill from that virus. I mean, the vast majority of infections are asymptomatic. And then there's a large co cohort of very mild infections where, okay, then you actually have symptoms of disease of the actual COVID disease. And then there's a very small portion that actually get very, very sick. Well, in amongst children, it's very, very small number that you're even getting sick. And what I've heard from most of the doctors that are talking about this uh, from this perspective is that the most important thing that would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives globally is early treatment, yeah. which is not being supported or proposed by our health experts. No, no. And I mean, that's the thing, too, is that you don't have the right to uh, impose a medical treatment on someone if they don't actually personally benefit from that treatment. I mean, it, in, in any case, it always has to be voluntary. But in the case of the kids, the, the, the risk of an actual, like a, a child that doesn't have a pre-existing uh, health condition has lower risk from the virus than from a vaccine that is throwing out things like myocarditis. I mean, these are, these are health issues that have potentially lifelong consequences. And we're testing we're rolling this out globally to all children based on a small study of 19 kids and <clears throat> with a three month long trial. I mean, the, the pandemics vaccine that was rolled out in the 2009 uh, swine flu pandemic, it took about a year for all the narcolepsy issues to show up. So that's why you have many multi-year trials before you roll this out for the general population. It's one thing to roll out a vaccine for those who are severely at risk where there's a and, and make it voluntary to say hey if you want to protect yourself you're a nursing home patient or you're a child with with leukemia or something like that that you try to protect that one individual that's one thing but you don't roll it out to everybody else in the world and expect them to take a risk without knowing what those long-term risks are and expecting them to and taking away their option to opt out it's a violation of of the core principles of our entire democracy and i mean you know, going back to like the Nuremberg trials after the Second World War, the entire point of that was to drive home the point that you do not allow central planners to take away people's autonomy over their own bodies. Yeah. Well, another side effect, which most people probably aren't aware of that, and again, I, I'll ask you to find, tell me the data on this that you have, but that since the beginning of the pandemic until a couple months ago, there's been a 20% IQ drop. Have you heard, heard about this? I haven't dug into that one. I've, I've briefly seen bits and pieces of it on, on social media, but I haven't. Well, uh, it, it makes a lot it. of sense because early attachment, of course, you know, here they are, they're yes. not socializing with other kids, they're not going to school, they're not going out. And there's been an overall drop of, from the researcher that I read, 20% drop in IQ. That's a whole generation of, of people that are, that are being born and brought into this oh, yeah. pandemic. Well, I mean, it, the, uh, the Children's Hospital here in uh, Ottawa 
they were reporting that they were had so many mental health issues in kids now that they were starting to uh, um, transfer some of these kids to the main adult hospital because they're overwhelmed with mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And I mean, these are kids that are, are suffering because of the consequences of lockdown and, and not being able to see their friends and all of these things that are really important for their lives. And we're just sacrificing them on that. Then the other thing that's happening is that as a result of of keeping children away from each other, like, you know, an immune system does need a certain amount of testing in order to stay healthy. And so now we're all of a sudden seeing these huge surges in RSV virus, because by not getting constantly small exposure to this thing, our immune systems are weaker, and therefore they're more vulnerable to a severe outcome from these other viruses. It's not that the viruses have changed, it's that our immune systems are weaker as a result of not having exposure to things. It's kind of the same principle as an island population that's been you know, kept away from other, other people. And then as soon as the, you know, the, the, the ship pulls up in the harbor, half the island population croaks because they had exposure to something. It's a similar concept. It's not quite the same, but yeah. it kind of expresses the same idea. Yeah. Yeah, it was something else about the the kids that I was. Oh, you know, I'm I'm in the field of trauma and and working with trauma, and these kids are traumatized. It's, they watch the videos, they watch the TV. Fear, fear, fear. You know, be scared, be worried, get shots. You know, parent, and then their parents are also traumatized, and that's having a huge impact on our society and our culture, also. Yeah, and I think we're normalizing the idea that we're allowing society to control individuals for an outcome. So these kids are being, are growing up in an atmosphere where if you're afraid of your neighbor, you have the right to lock your neighbor at home unless he does what you want, unless he takes a medical treatment that you want him to take. Mm-hmm. That's a complete violation of every principle at the heart of democracy. And this is rolling back into the you know, pre-enlightenment era where the, the, the empires, the kings and queens could essentially decide what, what you're allowed to do, where you're allowed to go, how you're allowed to like, basically conduct your life. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the institutionalized people, the people yeah. in the care homes and prison, and because those numbers are startling. And talk a little bit about how you see that, Julius. Yeah, because I, I went through, I mean, everything that I've, I've been writing about is fully research or fully referenced. So like if you go to my articles and click on the links or in my book, I've got the big reference list at the back. You can go back and actually see where the data is coming from. And it's all the government's own data. Like one of the most startling things is when you start to peel that apart, 75% of all deaths, this was back in May when I wrote that, 75% of all deaths in Canada had happened inside either like from an infection caught inside a nursing home, an infection caught inside a hospital, or an infection caught inside a prison. So it's not the location of death, it's the location of infection that matters here. Because I mean, everybody, if, you, if you're at the hair salon, you're still going to probably end up dying in the hospital. But the point is that the infection was caught inside one of those three institutions. And that gives you a sense that the vast majority of the folks that are vulnerable here are people that are already so ill that they're already either like they're institutionalized or they're trapped inside a, a hospital or a, a, a prison but i mean the prison numbers are very very not small but it it's it's incredibly shocking once you, you peel that apart to realize that you know we're making this huge kerfuffle and the folks that are actually at risk here 
are not being protected. I mean, you could literally lock up every single person that doesn't live inside a, one of those three institutions and 75% of the deaths would continue without a pause because the virus is inside those institutions. And yeah. I mean, you have the opportunity to, to, you know, when there's a, it happens in, in during bad flu seasons as well, where a nursing home will lock its doors and, and prevent visitors from coming in and even at times have some of the care staff living inside the nursing home for those couple of weeks while the worst of the wave passes through outside. That's how you protect the vulnerable on the inside, but that's not what's happening. So I can't remember if it was your numbers or somewhere else, because I've read a lot of different things, but um, it was about the life expectancy from when someone enters a, uh, uh, a home, you know, someone's placed in a home. And, and what's the number that you have about that? Yeah, I, I found a bunch of uh, research articles from the US that were saying that uh, the, like the median life expectancy is five months from the time that you enter a nursing home. So at this point, we've had three crops of folks coming and going. Like the folks that we're supposedly meant to be protecting are dying inside these nursing homes without access to their family members. Nobody's even asking them what they want. Yeah. And I mean, and if, if you're only plowing propaganda into their, into their rooms all day long without actually having an honest discussion about the data, they're also, they must be terrified of what's going on outside, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the stories of isolation, the stories of folks dying without their family members and all that, like it is just heartbreaking. And it doesn't seem to ring a bell that maybe we're doing something really wrong here. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. There's not a bigger upswelling and people standing up, but but people are afraid. I mean, so many people have stood up and said something and been slimed by by the press and the media. So it's a difficult situation. That alone should be the 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 bell that should go off that says, listen, if it's not safe for me to have an opinion that is contrary or it's not happening that nobody is actually able to get to Dr. Tam and have a proper debate with her. That alone should tell you that this is not science. This is, this is strong arm tactics. This is politics. And so like, that's not, you can't have a functioning democracy if you don't have that transparency of the accountability of having to defend your position against people that disagree with you. And I think this is the big point here. It's not whether you should or shouldn't have a vaccine. If you want to have a vaccination, you should be able to get a vaccination. Yeah. But you also need to do it with informed consent. And when you get a shot, what's amazing to me is you have to say, I give up all right to sue. And then I'm just supposed to take that shot. And yet, and this was uh, in the, the YouTube video, eight, eight scientists and doctors, I don't know if you saw that, but the so, yeah. numbers for the people who were in the clinics were amazing because now with the new mutations from the Delta and beyond, they're saying that originally they were having equal number of people who are vaccinated and not vaccinated coming into the clinics. Yeah. But since the mutations and the Delta and, and the two other variants after that, they are actually saying that there are more people coming in that are vaccinated than non-vaccinated. How do you how do you explain that? Well, it's unbelievable. I mean, uh, uh, we've been digging into some of the, the, the official data coming out of Public Health England, 
and I mean, in their own graphs, they were showing that the vaccinated were, were um, catching this now more than the unvaccinated. And yet then they've stopped publishing those charts and then they, you know, they, they kind of try to brush it away. And it's like, this is, this is serious stuff that needs a proper debate. It's unbelievable. And I mean, the, we can speculate about the reasons I, there's, I mean, some of the scientists have been warning for quite some time that, you know, a, a, a vaccine that, first of all, it's fading, like with, just like the flu vaccine, it only lasts for a certain number of months. And then the effect wears off. Of, of protecting you against any severe side effects, which means you're right back to being vulnerable. But the other problem with that is that if you, like there's a, a concept in science called antigenic original sin, I think it is, I, I'm getting the words mixed up. But anyways, it's the idea that once your immune system is trained to recognize a, a virus, that then as soon as it recognizes it the next time, it's gonna mount the same response. And so it sort of locks it into a certain response so that uh, if that virus starts to change, you might actually not get a full protection the next time it comes along. And so what may be happening, and I mean, it's a big caveat here, but what may be happening is that by um, training our bodies to recognize the spike protein, we're locking our immune systems into a spike protein driven immune response. And so now, it actually prevents your like it prevents other parts of your adaptive immune system from kicking in so that uh, the next time you're seeing the virus it keeps trying to fight the spike and the spike is evolving to be to get around that protection from the vaccine and the other parts of the virus that you should be mounting a protection against that your immune system isn't responding to that because it's locked into like a behavioral habit essentially your natural immune system that's right Spike is only one portion of that virus, a little tiny like, portion of it. And so, you know, the, the vaccine is actually only providing a partial immune response to what, like all the different parts of that virus. A natural infection means that you get a, an immune response to all the different parts, the stem, the head, the whole thing, right? And so it was always, it, it's, it's a similar issue with other vaccines as well, that the immunity that you get from an infection uh, is, is going to last a lot longer than the immunity that you get from a vaccination that doesn't cover the full broad spectrum. Yeah, that's a really important point. So much around this whole area, but I want to also make sure we, we look at manipulation of data also, because that, that's a huge thing. Yeah, talk talk about that some more because I think that's really important. I don't know why that would happen other than control and power and money, but uh, you know. well, I think it it does come down to that. Like once, whether it's even if it's for a good uh, uh, intention, and I don't think anymore that it is, but even if it's for a good intention, if you believe you have to strong arm society into taking the vaccine to save the world, and then people aren't cooperating and the, the data starts to go against you, once you're welded to that idea, you then start having to defend it by, you know, you start with a small lie and at some point you realize that the lies have added up and you're so far in it that your own career is probably on the line if you keep going down that path and, and get caught. So then you double down and triple down on the same lie over and over and over again. And I think that's playing a huge role in all of this. And I mean, the other thing with one of these hysterias is that once something like a vaccine becomes a, or anything else, and I mean, history is full of these kind of mass hysterias, once society grabs onto this totem that they're reaching for, 
there is no way there's nothing else that is even allowed like it becomes sort of a sacred object that people are hanging on to to where it's remarkable that you can dig through the government's own official data and, and, and through the things that are being published in the in the leading medical journals around the world and it's completely opposite to what the public health officials and the media are telling you on the news every day how do you think this became so global that's that's the part that china or russia or north korea or play you know places you think they're not going to go along with this but they have and places where you have a relatively high level of intelligence scandinavia <laughs> uh, being one uh, yes a democratic socialism definitely respecting individual rights how could this happen there's a remarkable article that was published in 2009 or 2010 about the 2009 swine flu pandemic because they essentially tried the exact same thing they tried to roll out an influenza vaccine so like a universal influenza vaccine based on the swine flu pandemic that was allegedly destroying the entire world and yet in hindsight it turns out that it was a, a sort of a normal flu season that's all it ever was but the you know the every portion of public health, starting at the very top, the WHO and all that, jumped onto this idea of rolling out a, a vaccine and, you know, hyping up the, the fear in order to get everybody to go along with it. And then, of course, you know, governments signed contracts with billions of dollars on board. There was billions of dollars worth of advertising money that was being funneled into all those, in all, into all of the media organizations. And so it, it basically achieved the same sort of paranoia but there was enough voices that were able to speak out at that point to stop it. Whereas at this point, with the cancel culture having evolved as far as it has, anybody that speaks out now is, is almost immediately thrown out of their career. And so there's a lot more pressure to stay silent. And the media is even faster to jump down everybody's throats than they were then. And some of the things to get people to do shots to me have just been one play. These are mostly in the States, but one of them was pink donuts. If you get your shot, you get a box of pink donuts. But another one was they had a million dollar lottery that everybody who got a shot, somebody won a million dollars in that lottery. Now, the methodology alone should make you suspect to that. Well, I mean, the, 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 the VAR system, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, which is maintained by the US CDC just to monitor vaccine issues in the United States, right? It's designed as an early warning system where if there's an, a number of events like deaths or injuries that are happening, that it sort of sets off an alarm. We need to dig deeper and see what's going on here. And I mean, the pandemic, pandemics vaccine I think it was 53 deaths or something like that led to it being pulled. We're now at over 17,000 deaths, plus all the other injuries from, you know, neurological injuries and blood clots and myocarditis. And there's a whole range of them. And yet there's no discussion of them. And the public health officials say, well, there's no evidence that those deaths are actually linked to the vaccine. Well, that's the point of the, that early warning system is that once there's a certain number of events that are recorded, you press pause on everything to absolutely rule it out. You don't say, well, we haven't looked and therefore there's no evidence. Like it's, it's completely backwards thinking of how that system is meant to work. Yeah. And it's, and it's actually quite remarkable that that system is 
still actually in place. Like the data is rolling in day in and day out, telling you there's something wrong. And it's like, it exists in a separate universe from the, the folks, the public health officials that are talking about it. Yeah, well, the other aspect of that that I was looking at was the, how many of the actual deaths have been with people with have five, six, 10, 12 comorbidities yeah. that are along that. And because they're on, a, on a, a COVID ward or something, it's considered a COVID death, but it doesn't mention they're 85, they've got, they're weigh 300 pounds and they eat Big Macs three times a day. I mean, yeah. and yeah, it's remarkable. Like, I think it was in BC, uh, that, um, Albert de Villiers, I think he was the chief medical officer for the BC interior. He was being asked about the uh, a nursing home in Rutland in Kelowna. And they, he was, they, they were talking about the deaths that had occurred in that nursing home. And he made a point of saying, listen, there's a lot of these folks that have died with COVID, but not from COVID. Like these are people that are in, you know, they're on palliative care. They are on their way out the door. And then they end up with a positive PCR test. That doesn't mean that the, that COVID was the cause of death. It, 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 and essentially what he's saying is that it can be either the you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back, or it may not have even played a, a role at all in this person's death. I mean, we, and we've seen that in every country from around the world. I can't remember the number in Canada. I think it's something like 96% of all deaths are deaths with comorbidities. In Italy, it was 99% of all the deaths are people with comorbidities. And that's even, like, you know, in that other, like the, the small number that aren't, unless you do an autopsy, you don't even know whether that's necessarily fully COVID or whether somewhere deep down in the bone, they've already had leukemia. And that's why they had a, you know, early stage leukemia or something like that, where their immune system was already compromised for another reason. And that's why they fell victim to severe consequences. Yeah. And we're not in any way underestimating the amazing loss that people have experienced and the families of losing their loved ones in any way. But another area I think that's gets called into question is the the PCR, the testing that's yeah. being done. What do you know about that? Well, I mean, actually to go back to the, you know, to say that the, the amazing loss of life, like the, uh, in, uh, at the end of May, it stood in Canada at around 24,000 deaths, which represents around 8% of an annual, like a full year's worth of deaths, like from all causes, heart, heart attacks, strokes, you name it, right? So it sounds like a very large increase in deaths. But the crazy thing is that if you look at deaths year over year, if, they, if you go to Statistics Canada and you pull up how many people died in 2019, 2018, et cetera, et cetera, what's amazing is that it basically, the, the COVID period basically does not stand out. It's a essentially a normal year. And that, uh, and that kind of gives you a sense of how many of those 24,000 deaths are actually among folks that would have either died anyways, because, you know, and, and it's the PCR test that's putting them into uh, being, making them be counted as a COVID death, or possibly that they're really vulnerable and it pulled their deaths forwards by a few weeks or months, but they were already so sick they would have died anyways in one of those other categories. And so that's where the PCR test is being completely abused as a tool as to like in order to uh, determine what's a COVID death and what isn't. It makes sense as far as tracking a pandemic to try to understand all the different places it's going, but it doesn't make sense to start calling every single person that had a PCR test uh, a COVID death because they're not. 
many of those people are, are dying for other reasons. And this, this COVID, like the PCR test, essentially just picking up a little tiny uh, fragment of, of DNA that could be from an earlier infection. It could be from an asymptomatic infection. There's a million other possibilities as to why it's uh, like why the virus is present in the PCR test without it necessarily affecting like the, the, the cause of death. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, so many points you're making. And to me, having heard most of these, it's hard to imagine how people can continue just to, to ignore this. Well, I think it's so overwhelming like there's, and I think that's part of the, the, the strategy here is that we're constantly flooded with endless volumes of data where most people end up just tuning out and saying, well, I got to trust somebody. And am I going to trust some random guy off the internet I've never heard or some random doctor at a university I've never heard of? Or am I going to trust the, the, the public health authorities that, you know, I may not have trusted them fully before, but I mean, at least, you know, they can't be all in on this to try to hurt us. And that's kind of the, and it's a natural response. But I think if you're watching those public health officials and the doctors that are speaking out in favor of all of these measures, not ever get grilled in a proper debate, not, not ever have to be answering for, to, to be accountable with their data and keep making statements without any data to back it up. There's a point where you have to go, well, maybe this system is completely broken and it doesn't actually even matter so much why. The point is, this is not how a democracy works. That's not how science works. And we got to press pause here before, before we go further down over the edge of the abyss. Yeah, it's everything is the one solution. Get the shot, get the shot. There's so many other solutions, so many other things to treat other aspects of the disease. I was going to say, like, if you can't question it, it's not science, it's propaganda, you know? I mean, I'm not putting out articles and, and writing about this because I want somebody to believe me. I don't. I want them to ask questions. I want them to look at what I have to say and, and argue with me. Like, that's the point is that it doesn't matter whether or not I'm right. What's important is that we're engaging in a two-sided debate because that's the only way that, that truth bubbles to the surface in a scientific discussion. And the fact that the one side, the, the government side, is absolutely unwilling to have those debates and is doing, going to such lengths to make it almost impossible to find the data on a lot of this stuff should be the, the alarm bell that should scare everybody into taking a step back. You know, I'm sorry we couldn't find somebody for this show. Uh, <laughs> you know, nobody even answered. And I think a lot of people are really afraid of being slimed and, and censored if they come on, or I'm not sure that everybody believes what the, the things that they're hearing themselves. I'm talking about in the medical profession. Look at how many people are leaving. I'm now hearing about alternative medical systems being set up because you know they've made it mandatory for nurses and, and doctors to be vaccinated when they don't believe in it. So there's now going to be very likely, it's it's already starting, an alternative care system in Canada and probably in the States too, I don't know, to to treat people that aren't buying buying into this whole thing. And in a free oh. society, that should be the way that it goes, that you have a chance to, to you know, evaluate what works for you and you know, make the choices that, that you feel are right and live with the consequences of those choices. Yeah. But what's happening now is that we're seeing the government shutting people down. I mean, if, if you and I want to feel like we're not at, or not worried about COVID and want to sit in a restaurant together and eat, and that restaurant is willing to serve us, why is it anybody else's business? 
we're the ones that are supposedly putting ourselves at risk. You have the right to stay home if you don't want to play that game. Like that's, that's what a free society looks like. A free society does not give me the license to prevent you from going to work, leaving your house or forcing you to take a medical treatment. I mean, it's, it's one of the, the biggest outrages of the 1960s was the, the forced draft to go fight a war in Vietnam for somebody else's benefit. We're horrified by a society that starts forcing people to take to do things for the, somebody else without and taking away their autonomy for somebody else's benefit. And yet we're doing like we're on the same we're falling into the same trap here right now. What do you say to somebody that says, well, going to a restaurant and not wearing a mask, this is not about you. This is about again, we're talking about protecting other lives. You know, this is the common statement that people say. I almost fell over when I heard President Biden say quite some time ago, if you're not getting the shot, you're killing people. The President mm -hmm. of the United States says exactly those are the, that's an exact quote. I mean, it, it's it's ludicrous, but it's actually extremely dangerous because you're essentially othering a portion of society and making them a scapegoat for something that is ridiculous. Like, I mean, the data doesn't back up that statement at whatsoever, right? But the, the very idea that, you know, you have the right to, to strap something onto my face, if it doesn't work for you, why should it work for me? I mean, this is one of the, the craziest uh, ideas of like the masks. There's no evidence with a proper randomized controlled trial that masks work. Right. So then they spun the, the idea of the masks to where you're not wearing a mask to protect yourself. You're wearing it to protect somebody else. Well, it's physically impossible. Like it's a, is this a one way mask? It doesn't work. And I mean, you can you can see like you get somebody with a with a what do you call it? A, um, an e-cigarette that exhales through one of these things and you can see the steam just blowing out everywhere. Well, if a virus is, is in the aerosolized particles, it's all through the room. It doesn't matter whether it goes straight out the front or out the side or through the fabric, right? But by taking that line, we are essentially using a control point of saying, well, you're doing this to somebody else. And that's the justification for why we can take away your rights. And that's a violation of, of every principle of a democracy. You're allowed to stop somebody from directly being aggressive to somebody else, but you're not allowed to stop somebody from living their life because their choices make you afraid. Yeah. You know, one of the problems is that I found that data makes very little difference in trying to convince somebody that holds a strongly held belief. But how do you talk to like my family, for instance, or your family, people, people that say you can't you can't come see your grandchildren unless you get a shot. I think that, I mean, what you said is exactly right. Like the, the data itself doesn't break through. I think this is more of a psychological game where the herd has to start to see that there's a counter narrative and that counter narrative has to get loud enough. So it's not, it's not enough to be against this stuff. It's not enough to just say at once that you're against it. You have to be you know, you have to make sure that your family, your coworkers, everybody knows that you're not okay with it. And the first person that says, I'm not okay with it is going to get laughed at. By the third, the laughing gets a little quieter. By the 10th person that they run into day in and day out, all of a sudden it's like, well, maybe this, this one narrative has enough challengers that I need to stop and think which way I'm, I'm 
like which way am I going to run? It's sort of like the, the analogy of the buffalo herd that's running towards a cliff. As long as everybody's running in the same direction, the ones in the front pull the ones in the back forward with them but through the momentum. But if the herd splits, the guys at the back kind of go, well, which way do I run? And they have to stop and think, well, where do I go? And it's that moment of doubt that opens up the mind to actually start digging into the data. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our, our responsibility is to just keep talking, keep showing every, and it doesn't even matter what we say so much as just saying, I'm not okay with what's going on here. I don't trust that, the, that there's the transparency that's needed. I don't like that there isn't a debate. You don't have to win the, the, the conversation as to whether or not, you know, what percentage of people are at risk from the vaccine. You just have to say, I'm not okay with this going forward um, to start to break this sort of a illusion of conformity that is holding these people in, in the sort of a group think mentality. Yeah. Again, you know, having had this conversation, there's much more we could say, we could give lots more data and talk about lots more data because you have it in your book and tell people how they can get a hold of your book. So the book is available at the moment on Amazon and it's out in, you know, ebook, paperback, large print and hardcover. At some point, it'll also make it to other bookstores that it can be uh, um, ordered through them. But of course, the traditional booksellers, it takes a little while to get uploaded into their system. But yeah, through Amazon, it's available uh, as soon as it as soon as you order. So it's ready. And tell them the name again. It's called the autopsy of a pandemic. And the subtitle is the lies, the gamble and the COVID zero con. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so, everything's in there is fully referenced, so folks can uh, go and look at the, the data themselves and try to, to start digging into it a little bit so that they're, they're not, I don't want anybody to trust me based on my word, I want people to go and look at the data for themselves and make up their own opinion on all of this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And again, the, the, the larger picture here is not even about the shot, the no. COVID. It's about freedom, it's about democracy, it's about truth, it's about standing up and having your voice be heard. And I, I think even more important than that, Julius, is listening to your inner voice. Yeah. You know? well, and I, I agree very much. And I think that, I think we have to ask ourselves, like what kind of, what role do we expect government to play in our lives? Do we want government to be the, the, the big brother, the referee that, determines everything in our life for us or do we want government to be the defender of our individual liberties so that we can live our life according to what we believe is right for ourselves and make informed choices and and have the right to inform ourselves without someone else deciding for us how we should live our lives i think that's a, a really important point that keeps getting lost in under the avalanche of data that it's like well wait a minute like is this okay? Do I, do I have the right to do this to my neighbor? Does, does my neighbor have the right to do this to me? Are we still the free society if we go down this path? Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also a much larger issue, which I think is beginning to be revealed. It's really interesting watching the, the climate change things that are shifting right now to looking to, well, wait a minute, why do we have climate change? Well, people aren't communicating. People are separate, but mostly we live in a, a sea of trauma, not just current individual trauma, but collective trauma, ancestral trauma. And for me, when I look at this issue, it's that what happens when people are traumatized, which is simply frozen past, either 
intergenerational, cultural. You know, we've never dealt with the native schools, the genocide, the dropping atomic bombs, slavery. I mean, those are some of the things that we swim in, not to mention uh, early childhood trauma and attachment trauma and all the other ways. So it leaves people disembodied. And I come from the corporate world originally, so I'm used to working with heads on sticks. You know, <laughs> bodies are just a way to get your head to the next meeting. We have trouble feeling our, our emotions in our body. We think our emotions, we don't feel them in our body. So there's this whole kind of cultural trauma that's happening, which makes people ripe to be manipulated, ripe to be manipulated and to just follow. I just want to belong somewhere. Let me belong. So the big picture is, oh, I can belong to the people who get the shots because that's what what the mainstream is. And if I go along, yeah. yeah, survival. And if I go along with it, I mean, if I go against it, then I'll, I'll be shunned. And a lot of people, a lot of great people have been shunned and hurt very badly I mean, by speaking their truth. I think that one of the silver linings of this madness is that we're all like the, the folks that have been on the outside of this narrative during COVID are talking to each other. And there's conversations happening across boundaries that haven't happened for decades, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's remarkable that the folks that are speaking out are literally from every end of the political spectrum, from as far left as you can go as to as far right, atheists, ultra conservatives, ultra, uh, you know, Buddhists, Muslims, Christians, you name it. Like, it's remarkable that all of a sudden we're all talking across all these boundaries. And I think there's a lot of really interesting conversations that are starting to happen and a lot of assumptions that we're starting to challenge were that just couldn't happen before because we're all stuck in our own little bubbles. So to me, that's a positive development that if we can keep this momentum going and growing it, it, it it's going to change the culture downstream. Yeah, you've got to have a tough enough skin to be called a conspiracy, conspiracy theorist, you know, yeah. and actually go, okay, well, here's, here's what I know. Here's what I see. Here's what I feel. This yeah. is what I stand for. And, and I think the issue of freedom and democracy to keep coming back to, am I free or am I going to listen to the people that are in power that are the people who are basically running the country and doing a very bad job on, as a whole. I have had some thoughts sometimes that because our governments don't know how to handle climate change, that this is like a scapegoat right. because they're not willing to talk and work together. And so we'll get control and, uh, and that's how we'll deal with climate change. I think they're very much related because they're both trauma symptoms. And I find it actually quite scary that this this model of taking away control from individuals to fight big, you know, some big threat that's that's uh, supposedly uh, uh, you know at our doorstep, that that's becoming a normalized approach to things. And it, you know, like if you can't have the conversations to convince people, you have no business forcing them. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Julius Rochelle, it's wonderful to have you on. I hope we have another conversation soon. That'd Let's see what kind of uh, static we uh, create with <laughs> this one. And um, again, if there's someone that uh, any of our listeners know is an uh, expert or someone who's a scientist or medical doctor, 
And I'm not interested in having somebody that's going to scream and, and yell as a tactic. You know, I'm not interested in Trumpisms. I really want somebody who's willing to engage someone who really believes what they're doing. And I know a lot of these people, good people, who really believe what they're doing. And I think it's important, like you said, to have a debate. So I want to tell people again. There's there's over 53,000 doctors and and medical researchers that signed the Great Barrington Declaration. That that alone tells you just how many doctors are out there and none of them are able to uh, get a proper debate going. So it's remarkable. Tell, Tell people what that is. Oh, the, the Great Barrington Declaration was, uh, it was started by three uh, doctors, like medical researchers that basically were saying that the, the approach with lockdowns and all that was the wrong approach that we need focused protection for the vulnerable, and let the rest of society continue going about their business, essentially. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it, it's had millions of signatures among and, you know, over 53,000 uh, uh, medical researchers, I, it may be higher by now, I haven't looked at it recently. But yeah, it was basically very widely and positively received, but the the public health officials basically just downplayed it and pretended it didn't exist. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So uh, people can get your book, uh, Autopsy of a Pandemic, on Amazon. They can get sign up for your newsletter, which is a wonderful newsletter. You're very prolific uh, (laughs) by going to Julius, J-U-L-I-U-S, Rochelle, R-U-E, chel.com and uh just thank you for just the stand you take for democracy for freedom and for truth julius it's really an honor to have you on the show thank you so much i really appreciate the invitation to come on this is fantastic we'll talk again i'm sure you bet that'd be a pleasure (laughs) bye for now bye-bye We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.